HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one of your hosts, Darren Bresnitz. And all I can say is, what a fucking week this has been. It has just been very taxing, and we hope that you are staying safe and staying sane and taking time for yourself checking in with your friends and your family and your loved one. And all I got to say is part of why I love doing this show week in, week out, is that we get to sit down and talk with some of our favorite chefs and musicians and colleagues and friends and people in the industry and take a little break and try and shine a little bit of a spotlight on what's going on in the world with the people who we really, really respect and love. One of those people is Chef Kenny Gilbert. He comes to us from Florida and talks to us about his lifelong dedication to the culinary arts, how he started very young in the kitchen with the support of his parents, and how he's really passed that support onto the people who've passed through his own kitchen. We talk about COVID, we talk about the current social revolution, and we also talk about some of the at-home spices and sauces that he's serving up for anyone who's in their kitchen just a little bit more these days. And then we head into the archives and we have a great, dreamy, electro, vibey conversation with Null Sleep. It's really fun. It's really just uplifting. And we hope that it brings a little bit of a smile to your face. Uh, We have a book coming out October 14th, Snacky Tunes. Music is the main ingredient on Faden. Please pre-order, support all the independent restaurants that are in the book if you can. Order out, take out, pick up, do what you can to support Congress, pass the HEROES Act, and everyone, vote, 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 vote. Our lives depend on it. This is the most important election we've ever lived through. So much is on the line. Get your plan, get action, and get the word out. Do not get distracted by all the noise. Just vote. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy some Snacky Tunes here on heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. 
Kenny, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, you know, a lot of the national restaurant spotlight has been on cities and states like New York and California, Portland, et cetera. And I know that you are in Florida. So could you give us a little bit of a, a background or shine a little spotlight on what's going on in your neck of the woods? <laughs> Uh, I mean, in, in our area, pretty much the same like everywhere else. I mean, we opened up um, in Jack's Beach, uh, our bars uh, earlier than anybody else. Um, and then we got dinged on that. Like a week later, there was like 300 cases after people went out to some of these bars. Um, then they shut us down. Uh, and basically over the last several months, there's been um, no, absolutely no bar activity whatsoever. And they just now released it as of this week where bars can operate at 50%. Um, yeah, so the governor pretty much had said that it was almost like he was putting the bars on punishment because they were not regulating the way they were supposed to according to the CDC regulations, uh, ensuring and enforcing that social distancing was happening. So he pretty much said, okay, well, since you don't want to do what you're supposed to do, well, I'll just shut down all the bars. Restaurants are only at 25%. And, and then, there, then there's that. So I think we just went up to 50% in the restaurants. And uh, as far as uh, we're hoping that over the next couple of weeks, the restaurants will be able to get back to 100%, which he alluded to that maybe that'll happen sometime in October, probably before Thanksgiving. Um, I would imagine it's probably realistic, but, you know, I think a lot of people are thinking that October is going to be the time frame. It's so interesting that restaurants and bars have had to carry so much of the brunt of the blame for COVID, when at many times, at least at a state level or even a federal level, there hasn't been really clear regulation and your businesses cannot operate remotely. How have you felt or how have you dealt or how are you dealing with this constant back and forth, especially when you're supposed to be shouldering the blame for the spread when it's not really all on your shoulders? Well, um, me in particular, um, I closed out my restaurants um, in search of uh, opening a larger restaurant and in somewhere in Florida. And then we decided that we were going to open in, in Raleigh. So that's been, uh, that's been uh, delayed obviously during the COVID, but uh, I'm, I'm still here in Jacksonville and I've been helping out some friends in some of their places. And the reality is it's hard enough margins just to operate at a hundred percent, you know, let alone like, okay, now you got to operate only at 25%. And, and now they're actually sending out an code enforcers to make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to do. And it's crazy because um, at the end of the day, it's the, yeah, it, it's, it's the individual's responsibility to make sure they wear a mask, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, do we decide that we're going to open up and just provide only takeout? If we do dining, are we doing dining properly? How are we going to enforce you know, the craziness when you have like all of a sudden a hundred people just show up and they want to come in and eat and you have the tables, but now you got to block them off. I mean, it's just, it's a lot of pressure for the restaurants when you got, it kind of like have this, this herd of cattle that just kind of just show up and you got to deal with it. Um, so a lot of my friends have uh, like 50% of them have reopened mm. and our social, uh, social distancing um, actually pretty well. I've been going out and frequenting, 
uh, all kind of restaurants to show support. Um, and then there's others that just said, forget it. We're only going to do curbside takeout um, because they don't want to even bring back the, the labor at this point because they know if they do. Then all of a sudden it's like, all right, well, you only, we're only at 25%. How are we going to actually even be able to do what we're supposed to do? People don't, people are already impatient as it is, you know, you know, and if you're not a chain, like a cheesecake factory or PF chain, something like that, the likelihood that someone is going to be sitting, at least in Jacksonville, the likelihood of someone standing in line uh, or waiting around for a long period of time when you're supposed to be socially distancing as it is, is not very likely, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but some people just don't just don't give a shit. They're just going out and doing whatever you want. And that's why yeah. you have such a huge division around. There's people like, oh, you know, you're against my rights. I, I, I don't have to wear a mask. And it's just... You know, just a lot of stupidity going on right now and just lack of empathy as a whole. <laughs> I mean, I think this could have been managed a lot, a way a lot better, as everyone I'm sure can attest to. But, um, you know, people are just, you know, like in the United States, we're the only place that basically hasn't gotten our shit together. You know, yeah. Uh, my wife, you know, my wife took me to Cabo for my birthday weekend and there wasn't too many people there, but I would tell you from, the, the entire experience from the time we, well, the time we got to the airport, traveled through the airport on the flights, and then landed in Cabo, the entire experience, the whole time we were there was, to me, almost like flawless in terms of the execution of uh, higher sanitation um, standards, people wearing masks. I mean, even the drug peddlers that were in some of the areas, they had, they, they had, they had, they had freaking masks on. Like, oh, you want some weed? You want some blow? Like, and yeah. I'm like, dude, we get on my face. Like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> um, but yeah. uh, but but they had it dialed in, man. I mean, and uh, I just think that you know people just need to sit back. Because right now it's very traumatic. I mean, just like you guys are dealing with fires out there, it's like the hurricanes that we usually deal with over here on the East Coast. You you have that risk factor all the time. But all of a sudden, it's like you're putting all your heart and soul into something, and then all of a sudden, it could be gone just because of a you know, um, you know, an act of God situation. Um, but then we're crazy enough to keep doing it because we have this thing in us about serving. And even in when it's tough times, people always come to the restaurant tours and say, Hey, can you help us out with this charity? Can you help us out with this? Yeah. We're like, Oh, sure. We'll do it. We'll do it because we're looking at feeding our community. And then now when we really need the community to be supportive and not give us any shit, you know, about how we're, you know, doing certain things and not getting frustrated, it should be like, you know what? The entire world is in this, in this together and we should be helping each other to get out of it versus being divided. You know, it's interesting that you keep talking about support and um, being part of a community. And that's something that I've noticed throughout your entire career and, and what I've um, actually seen in your history as a chef. Uh, I was reading about that you got into the kitchen really young and that your parents are really supportive of your cooking endeavor, which you have now transferred to chefs who work for you and other people in the community. Um, what do you love about cooking? What do you, what have you always loved about cooking and the community and support it allows for you to give and receive? You know, uh, <clears throat> what I love in particular is the expression of joy on someone's face when we break bread. Mm. I mean, there's, there's nothing more, gratifying than that i mean and if that's if we're talking like we are right now we start yeah. talking about your family history my family history 
And then all of a sudden, like, oh, well, what did you grow up eating for breakfast? What was a constant? Or, or what was your normal Sunday dinner? And like, oh, how did your mom do, um, you know, if you're an Italian background, like, did your mom ever do fried chicken? How did she season it? Did she, you know, it's like you, you have dialogue. And to me, that's, I love that about our, our business, because I can walk into a hole in the wall, so to speak, restaurant that's in a, say, C market you know, versus some of these higher end restaurants are in the A market. And I'm going to go to the C market restaurant and I'm going to sit down and talk to the owners uh, who more than likely the, the husband or wife is in the kitchen cooking. The, the opposite is right in the dining room. The, the cousin or, or the, the, the kids are servers and busing and washing dishes. And it's, they're bringing their cultural um, background to the community because they feel like that was missing in the area. And then to be able to sit down and break bread with someone from another culture uh, or even another idea or perspective is what I love about it. And, um, and that's why I keep doing it. It's like, it's like kind of like being a glutton for punishment. It's like, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you, you know, that it's hard. It's like, you know, it's hard. As you know, it's like, hard, man. It, it's, you know, what's crazy right now is like all the restaurant tours out there that have been doing it for a long time. And then that, that, that might have 10, 15, 20, 30 units, whatever. Now they're expressing how hard it is and all the details and, and what it is to make, how to make margins and everything. And, and it's like, it's like, yeah, that's been happening forever. Like, you know, we don't do it. Like Michelle Bernstein mm-hmm. uh, was on a, on a, on a podcast uh, not too long ago with Timone Blue and Michael from Pirolo's uh, down in Miami. And they're like, she's like, you know what? The margins are slim. She narrated it perfectly, exactly how it is. It's like, we get up every day because we want to basically, you know, cook food for our, our families and our community. And that's why we do it. Yes, you do it because you have to make a living. You want to make money. And some are more, if you get the perfect storm, the perfect scenario, you can be more successful than some of others. But at the end of the day, when you know you're getting up and opening up the keys to your building and you're buying, you know, beautiful, fresh food and you're cooking it with love and then you're serving it, there's something about, there's something that is very um, addicting to that. You know, having that mm. feeling of like, feeling like, oh my gosh, like they loved it so much. I mean, when I, I still get as equally as excited and I don't care who it is. It's like, if I do a post of a pic of like, okay, I just did a, you know, ramen. I made some homemade XO sauce like a week or two ago. And then I made, I literally just took some, some fresh ramen noodles, a little bit of XO sauce, some fresh scallions and toasted sesame. I did like a little post with some chopsticks. I'm like, this is what I'm about to eat for lunch. And I'm going to sell this XO sauce for X amount of dollars a jar or whatever. And the amount of response that people say, Oh my God, like I would love to have it. The, 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 the pure, I was just so excited because I like literally I just posted what I was having for lunch and and I was like I want to be able to serve this to a bunch of people because it's so good to me I want to be able to share that and I want people to have the same emotion that I'm having from it and if they don't I want to learn why why don't right. they like it or whatever right. you know and so it's this vicious cycle of oh it's pleasing people of, that's right that's right that's it it's what it is. It's just you, you get that – it's a, like a daily dopamine hit where you just throw out your, your culinary art and your mind into the people and they go, are you going to eat this? Are you going to like this? Are you going to love this? Um, you know, yeah. And I, yeah. You know, I, don't think, I don't think people take enough advantage of it, but I know that I love – with the way that we – with social media, it's so crazy because right now we, we can pretty much see anything from anywhere around the world. You know, you get, mm-hmm. everyone's posting something. And then 
to be able to see someone's perspective of an ingredient, you 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 want to dig in to understand why because you can look at the the very clear idea. Okay, tomatoes are in a season. How many different things you can do with a tomato? You're gonna make fresh sauce. You're gonna do a tomato pie. You're gonna do just a great BLT. You're gonna do sliced tomatoes with salt and pepper with mayo, a great Duke's mayo on white, a good crusty French bread. I was like, what are you gonna do? You know, every culture has a thing, and it's like you look this, and when you see someone do something different, you're like, man, why did why did they come up with that? Well, their perspective is different because of their household, their their upbringing, what mm-hmm. they were just inspired by. Maybe they were taking a run and you know, running the beach and they saw a bunch of uh, crabs and, uh, or oysters or, you know, whatever. And they're like, Oh, I was inspired by that. That's why I put it together. It's the artistic approach to it is like, you know, is is amazing. Um, You know, so I'm always very intrigued by this business as in the psyche of why we do things. Amazing. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk a little bit more about the current state of the restaurant industry and then about what else you have going on, especially uh, the sauces and spices and everything you got happening. We have a, a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm here with Chef Kenny Gilbert. And in the last segment, you were talking about these giant restaurant operations, which are technically still independent because what we consider giant when you compare it to the Cheesecake Factories or the McDonald's or things like the of the world are still pretty small in comparison. Um, and a lot of these examinations of these old empires and old mindsets have really come under scrutiny, I would say, with both COVID and then also everything that's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement and the social revolution we're living through. And I also uh, was taken aback by something that you said and that I really loved um, in one of the interviews I found of you about supporting people who may not come from a traditional background with cooking um, and about how you could put them into your kitchen for two years and they'd come out a stud, which I thought was really amazing. But there really has been this examination of like, who's cooking, who is the right to tell certain stories with food, who owns what, who gets to write the next chapter, which we're about to enter with food. And you've been a big proponent about supporting those who might not have had a voice in the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, how you're supporting people and how you're growing your community and what you think the future of food looks like because we are about to enter a whole new era of restaurants. Yeah, man. Um, I think that we need to realize that the world is going to be brown like mm -hmm. sooner than later. It, it's, it's, it's constantly evolving that way. The, the millennial group are a lot more progressive. They're a lot more like, I mean, you see right now, they're leading the, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, the, the protesting and everything. It's the young people that are, that are doing it and that are having an opinion, like, like, no, this is not right. You know, whether it's gender equality or, or whatever it may be. And I think that when people realize that we're in this together, it's, it's in, and that we're one race. And just because the, the color of our skin doesn't define who we are. We're just a person. We we may you know we grew up. We were we were born. We've had to you know the, you know we you know had to have to eat. We have to shit. We have. I mean, we all do the same stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, and and the sooner that we realize that, you know what, you know, I love seeing like documentaries and stories um, on on TV or whatever, or reading up on it, and you're seeing that someone like I was just reading up on some on Ghana, uh, some food from Ghana. And I was looking at a YouTube channel and the, the, the husband was from London, the, the wife was from Ghana. And so here they have this melting pot of a home, right? He's, they, they probably met in a university, probably in London or whatever, and they fell in love. And now there's two cultures that are colliding, you know, and, uh, and then they're trying to figure out like, all right, the husband likes this, the wife likes this. And you sort of bridge things together. And, and next thing you know, they end up having kids. And then they, they bring the kids up in this. And maybe the one kid, maybe the daughter loves foo-foo and the mm -hmm. son hates it. And they only like to have the groundnut soup with rice. And then the son's got to have it with foo-foo. But they prefer the foo-foo with majority cassava versus plantain. It's like, 
it, it's all intertwined into that, that one family unit. And that's how we're going to end up being as an entire race at some point, because, you know, the, the, the cultures um, and different ethnicities are constantly melting together. And the better that we realize that that's, this is the way that it is because love is based on love, not yeah. on, well, I only love you because you're Indian from this uh, hierarchy and I have to be with you. It's like, no, I, that shouldn't be that. And even though there's certain cultures that still do that, that's not, you know, like, and then the daughter's like, well, shit, like, I love this guy over here. You know, he's um, a, a, a white kid, blonde hair, blue eyes from London. We fell in love because he respects me and loves me. Right. Why can't, why can't I be with that person because of that? And why can't we grow as a family and, and, and as a race and being better because we've, we're willing to learn each other. Um, you know, I, I go back to my days when I went to, uh, I traveled to Japan in my late twenties uh, or early twenties, like 24, 25 and be, traveling over there uh, as an African American, when most people saw me, they were assuming that I was African just because I was black. Like I was strictly from, some part of Africa not coming from the states, right? And through that whole thing, and to to be traveling around into a, in a country where everyone is Japanese, and then there's then there's little snippets of like, oh, here's some white people over here, there's some black people over here, here's some Latino, and then you try to break it up based on where they're actually re- are really geographically from. It's it, it was it's pretty interesting when you travel by yourself and you're having to adapt and overcome over a month period of time to your environment. And uh, when I, you know, and the same thing just happened when I went to Cabo, we went to Cabo and it's, you know, we're in Mexico. Like, it's like, this is the, you know, this is the country and it's like, hey, this is what's going on. And, and, and everyone is Mexican. And, and it's like, again, I'm a minority and it's like, uh, my wife is Mexican American. Um, and so she was had this feeling of a sense of place. She was like, you know, I feel like mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm in my motherland. I'm in my my my. I, I'm here with my people. Even though she was born here in the states, um, she just had a, a sense of place. And I I I haven't had that feeling yet, 100 percent, because I haven't been to Africa yet. So mm. I, I have that. I've had that feeling being on the islands when I go to Barbados, when I go to the Bahamas, uh, Bermuda, when they're predominantly black. Um, and but at the same time. It's gonna be a lot different when I go to Africa. I feel, and I find out my lineage and exactly where I'm, uh, what you know, tribe up front and whatnot. As we're going through this journey, but at the end of the day, I think people just need to realize that if you take the time to learn about somebody else, you realize that the only difference is, is really a lot of times based on what we ate and how we, you know, and certain traditions. How you know, respect is always gonna be in everyone's household for the most part. You know, some might care more than others, but for the most part, there's always going to be respect. And then it's a matter of food. Like, what did you have for breakfast this morning? What is your go-to, like, versus, you know, my go-to? And my go-to, if I'm eating on the West Coast, is a lot different than would it be maybe on the, on the East Coast because temperature, product availability, all that. I mean, when I was in Japan, I got up every morning, had a cup of miso soup with a little mm. bit of, um, you know, uh, wakame. And then I drank some green tea. It's like when in Rome, you, you know, when yeah. I was in Spain, you know, I had a, a baguette with um, 
arugula ham and um, manchego with the crushed garlic rubbed into the bread and the crushed tomato. I had it every morning for breakfast with a, pan, a, a San Pellegrino water. That was, you know, it. because, you know what I mean? And it's like, so you, to me, I adapted where I'm at and learn. And that way, when I'm having a conversation with somebody, more times people are going to be a lot more comfortable when you, you, you are acknowledging who they are and learning about who they are and their culture. And, and um, because you're like, man, you know what? I want to learn about you. I want to learn more about who you are and, what, and, and things that make you tick. And that's going to help make me a better person in society. And I think that's, I think we all need to start looking and thinking that. Not to say that people don't, but I think, that, I think there's some people that are still so segregated. It was like, oh, well, you know, I, I only want to be with someone that is black or I want to be with someone that is, is, is Chinese. or I mean, I think we have to start thinking a little bit differently because yeah. um, it, 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 we're, we're, gonna, we're coming to that regardless. I guarantee if you, if you look at some kind of so the statistics, you're seeing that we're going to be a brown race sooner than later. It's just, it's just the way it's happening. It's just, it's just, it's just evolution. I mean. Yeah. I, and I, you know, even in your reference points about exo sauce and being in Japan and being in Spain and being in Mexico and looking to Instagram, at least the world through the lens of food is becoming more accessible and more diverse. And we've seen a little bit of that, um, come into play in the last couple of years of people latching onto a concept from maybe a different um, heritage or background or things like that. And then some people paying respect, which I think it sounds like you're doing. Um, and then some people not paying respect and making it their own, but not giving the, the proper, um, you know, right. acknowledgement of where it comes from and the culture yeah. and things like that. And so as we start to see, restaurants that are going to be born post pandemic. Mm. I think you're going to see a lot of more of these singular concepts, right? Like someone who's from Barbados opening up, uh, you know, a type of restaurant that serves that food. Someone maybe from Ghana serving, you know, that type of food, maybe someone who's coming up from Cabo and doing their take on Mexican food and things like that. Mm. Um, but it is going to be, I think more singular in nature, more defined and more personal. So yeah. where do you think, you see restaurants going, where do you hope to see it going? And how do you, how would you like to see the chefs opening restaurants uh, representing the food they cook, whether it's from their heritage or not? Well, I think that you have to be smart based on your, cause that's kind of a broad question, right? Because at the end of the day, you have to look at your demographics right? Like you have to do your demographic research. Like if you came to Jacksonville and you went to the orange West side area, area called orange park. Um, it's the, one of the largest Filipino communities in the country reside in orange park mm. because, because of the, 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 um, the military, you know, the Naval base, um, a lot of them, you know, military, they come over nurses, doctors, whatever the case may be. Uh, and they just landed there in um, in Orange Park for whatever reason. One of my best friends is 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 from there, and he's Filipino. And if you came over here and you decide to open up a so say, you decide to open up like oh I'm just going to open up a uh, an Italian restaurant right in this community that is majority right. Filipino, it's not necessarily a wrong thing because maybe you did a research and there are no Italian restaurants in that particular area. And it might be nice to have something 
that is authentic and pure because maybe the person that moved into the area lived in Italy and wanted to bring something that reminded them of when they lived in Italy for X amount of time. You right. Know, that, and that person may be black. They may be German. They may, they may not even be Italian, but guess what? They may have li- <coughs> lived with somebody in an Italian family and learned the food in its purest form and they came back and they said, well, I want to pay homage because I miss this food. I miss my, my, my family from back in Italy and I want to be able to open this up here. And they, and they tell a story because food is storytelling, right? Like right. If, I, if I come to your house right now and I walk in and, and I smell like, you know, cornbread cooking in the oven, I'm like, man, that cornbread smells great, <laughs> you know? And, 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 you know, and just because I look at you and you're a white gentleman, that doesn't mean that you don't make cornbread. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a quick bread. Like, but maybe you went to college in, in Alabama. You went to the University of Alabama and then you had a bunch of friends who were from the South and you went, maybe there was a time you couldn't go home for, for Thanksgiving and you went to one of your friend's house, your roommates for Thanksgiving. And next thing you know, you're like, oh my God, I'm in love with this cornbread. And then the mom and the grandma teaches you how to make it. Every time you make that cornbread, you're going to tell a story. You're going to tell a story. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it, because there's a connection. Um, there's a connection to food. It's not just like, oh man, you're making an amazing omelet. Like what, you know, what's the story behind that? Oh, I just, I just make great omelets. No, no, it doesn't work that way. It's mm-hmm. like, where did you learn how to do it? What right. it was, it, was it in culinary school? Was it because you work for, you know, um, Wolfgang ch- Puff? I, yeah, and, did you, yeah, yeah. And, and he was adamant about his omelets and had, you had made his omelet every morning until so you got it perfect. And then you ran a line, you were able to put out 500 covers and 250 of those were perfect omelets with no brown and fluffy every single time. Well, that's your story. You know, you don't have to be French to know how to do it. You just, have, you just learn how to do it and you can tell where it came from. And I think poor, more people just need to be honest about that. I mean, Andy Richter that opened up Puck Puck and, yep. and um, you know, he traveled over to Thailand. Like, why can't he actually have a restaurant that is Thai? He paid, he, he speaks the language. I know. He I mean, his team over, you he, know what he, I mean? he is sort of the example of putting in the work and giving yeah. respect and, but also saying I've gone to the mountain, you yes. know, and I bring back this knowledge and never claim it as a hundred percent my own. And every day I'm just giving respect to this, to this cuisine that I love. You know what? And there's nothing, see, nothing there's, wrong nothing, with that. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think that when it, it's, it's an interesting, it, when you start talking about Southern food and you start talking about Southern chefs, everyone has, you know, they're gonna have a perspective. And some people are gonna say, well, listen, he's doing this kind of food and he learned how to do it. He didn't really learn that, you know, uh, he had to learn that from someone that is black and blah, blah, blah. Like if, whether you're talking about Sean Brock or you're talking yep. about anybody, it's like, it's like the, the issue, I think the issue is not necessarily the fact that the person doesn't love Southern food because that's why they're cooking it and they research it and they've, they're paying, they're doing it. They're taking the trip. Like Sean, like he made, he, he went to Africa. He's been to Africa before I went to Africa. Well, you get multi-million dollar book deals and whatever. You have the opportunity. Every dog has his day right it may not be your time but you know what eventually you're gonna have it well he had his time and he's and he took advantage of it and he, he was able to put a spotlight on a cuisine that basically wasn't it like when i was running fine dining 
and I was incorporating these kind of things that wasn't necessarily as popular, you know, back in the late nineties. But then all of a sudden two thousands, then it's like, you know, when he's doing it, it's all of a sudden like the coming of Jesus. And it's like, Mm. I think, I think the issue is not the fact of that he did it with passion and his own idea and his Southern roots. It's the fact that media and whatnot don't acknowledge other people of color that have done it before or whatever. And I, and I think we're, like, we're always late to the party. And then it's like, it's, it's, it's acknowledged after the person that is, you know, white did it. And it's like, all right, now we can go ahead and acknowledge everybody else. And, yeah. and, it's like, and I think that, that becomes the debate and the conversation. It's not the skill set or the, the constant pursuit for perfection of trying to do that food to as best of his ability. Because guess what? If I make ramen, I'm going to make a proper dashi. I'm going to make a proper tari. I'm going to make proper fat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the proper noodles. And then from there, I'm going to, you know, if I do a soya egg, I'm going to do it exactly the way it's supposed to be done. So someone that has ramen, if I serve this to Morimoto, then he's going to say, you learned it properly. Like right. there might be a, 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 a slight di- difference in terms of taste, in terms of his preference. But then the day, he said, you know what? You respect the culture. You know what I mean? You're doing it properly. And you learned it from here. Bravo. You know what I mean? And you'll probably be equally excited to be like, this is who I studied under. And this is who I learned it from. And you, you would right. say, this is the lineage of my dish. This is who I paid respect for. And that's why it tastes so good. Not just yeah. say, oh, yeah, I make ramen. And you cut out all the people before you who blaze the way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I want to talk about um, Southern food and authenticity uh, as it relates to you, because you were supposed to open up a restaurant in Raleigh, North Carolina this spring, yeah. Cut and Gather, which obviously um, was put on hold due to COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, there's been this argument, um, sort of what you said about authentic, and because you lead with that in the description of your restaurant. Um, mm-hmm. but you're sort of looking at two things right now. Like you have this restaurant and you have this new conversation about authenticity and who owns, um, it and becoming and inserting yourself in the conversation saying like, no, this is authentic. And then you're also wrestling with the idea of like, okay, it's pandemic COVID. Does it even make sense to open up this type of restaurant anymore? Um, with not knowing what the path moving forward is as far as percentage of people in a restaurant, you know, P&Ls, mm. bottom line, things like that. So where is your mindset on the food and the business of this new spot that's still sort of hanging in the balance? Well, um, ultimately, a lot of this is um, hanging on uh, the governor um, and making a decision on how to reopen the state. Mm. Um, and and um, so that, so a lot of, a lot of times that becomes the issue. Like I just saw, a video like it was like it's kind of like a rap video that someone had posted on um, on Instagram, and the guy is rapping. The gentleman is rapping about the how you really need to vote and pay attention to what is taking place, and your idea of who is actually doing things is not really the fact. Like he talked about, you know, you want to focus in on your legislation, you know, and you know the people that can get voted in and out every two years. That's what you need to be paying attention to, not the person that's the president that basically may have a final sign off, but the people that are putting it in front of them and saying, well, this is what we're doing because we, we vote the right person in, you know, like, you know, I, I think that, you know, my take at this point is 
the same way as when I was looking at the restaurant concept, what is going to be, because you start thinking about like, oh, cool, it's creative food. I want to cook some good food. Then it's like, all right, well, what is the, what is going to be recession proof? What is going to be a timeless concept? Mm. It, not, not a one-off, not a one-off, you know, like me saying, oh, I want to do like a barbecue ramen restaurant. Well, that might be cool if it's in Texas and there's no ramen in the area. And I just happen to have, a barbecue restaurant and I'm using up the, mm. the trimmings or whatever to make my dashis. And, <laughs> right, right, and I, right. I mean, and I just came up with a concept like right now, like literally uh, yeah. that would be really cool. You know what I mean? It's so really like, cool. Every concept on the show, I get 10%, all good. Uh, <laughs> the lawyer will send over the paperwork. But yeah, barbecue, ramen, let's go. We'll do yeah, it. Right, right. And, but it's like, I always think about like, well, what's the timeless concept? Yeah. What are people gonna, what are people what are they what do they want to eat in you know January, February, March? You know, like every every month, like what is, what is it? Like what's gonna keep them coming back? What are the craveable dishes? That's what I go for. So to me, the only variable right now is more so like um, getting the place built, finish building it out. Yeah. When are we gonna be back at a hundred percent? And even if we're back at a hundred percent, that doesn't mean that everyone's going out immediately like that. So maybe you put your focus maybe on takeout um, mm -hmm. and curbside because more people are, you know, the spike in that side of the business is huge because they still want to support their local restaurant. Yes. But they don't, they don't feel as comfortable going out. So like, well, I'll go ahead and I'll get the food delivered to my house. So I know that I'm still ordering out. I'll do that. Well, um, my thoughts have been like, has always been looking at of dining business, your lunch, your dinner, are you open for breakfast? What's your over, what's your late night program like? What's your, you know, what's your takeout program like? What's your catering program like? You have all these questions. You try to put it all massage together, whether it's fast casual or a larger space. Um, I don't think, you know, my mindset is pretty much the same, except there's a higher emphasis on, even a higher emphasis on sanitation, um, looking at the flow of I like kind of like the flow of the river when you talk about HACCP and the, 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 you know, the flowing river and the, and what is the, you know, the hazard analysis, critical control points, like from the time you buy your food to the time it's served, what is that process with now the added CDC stuff? And a lot of it is making sure the food is prepared from someone that has gloves on that's changed frequently, um, single use gloves and they have a mask on everything. still the proper temperatures like it's supposed to be, and then the food should be covered. You know, like right now, think about, like, and I don't know how it is in California. I think you guys are still closed. But like here yeah. in Florida, if you technically, if you, if, if I go to McDonald's, right, you know, this, this is an example. If I go to McDonald's, guess what? That's a timeless concept because they have drive through. Mm. They don't care. They don't care about someone sitting in the dining room because they just, they purposely designed the seats and everything in there to be uncomfortable anyway. They want to, they want to herd the cattle. It's like Chick-fil-A. They want to go. They want to go through the drive-through, get in, get out. You know, they know that however many cars is going to be X amount of dollars. Boom, 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 boom. That's why some of these these dining rooms are getting smaller. The chairs are more uncomfortable. Um, they got like nobody in there. They just have kiosks now that, that you're starting to add that you can punch in your stuff. But guess what? You when you get your food, your food is covered. It's prepared. It's wrapped up. So when yeah. I get it, I can, I know that someone prepared it with gloves. I had a mask on because that's what's required. And when I eat it, I'm not versus if I go to a restaurant, I've been, you know, went to a restaurant last night, for example, and food is beautiful. Staff are in masks. Place is super clean. 
everyone's social distancing. But just say hypothetically. Yeah. Uh, I see you where you're what? going. The food is coming out. Someone sneezes because they're sitting at the table they're eating. They sneeze into their arm, but they really miss. All those little droplets are flying all around. And then the, the food runner that is, is working at a good pace is carrying that plate that is not covered. There's no mm. lid cover on it. And they just walk by and then they give it to that person from, you know, they're in one area of the restaurant to all to the other. Well, that's the issue is the food is not covered because, you know, that's where you can actually have the cross or you walk maybe a part of the dining room that the walk by the hostess stand. And guess what? There's 20, 30 people standing there yeah. uh, waiting for a table. They're not socially distancing people from um, that's on a wait. You know what I mean? Is it, they're not like saying, well, go back to your car, sit there, and then let me page you when it comes time. So the restaurateurs are trying to manage this herd of cattle that just come in like, man, we got to serve all these people. Right now, they're, try- they're waiting on their, their page or their buzzer to, to sit down. But guess what? You know, and, and they're in mass, which is great. But what if that one person decides that, hey, I want to go get a, a, a drink from the bar? Well, they don't have to have their mask on if they're eating or drinking. Well, all right. Well, they're not at a table. They're standing there, and they, and they could be somewhat social distant. But again, that one little hiccup that that could become the cross contamination. So yeah. for me, I think that the covered takeout, I think upscale, um, uh, fast casual, um, yeah. is going to be the way to go. Whereas, like, what do you you guys have there in California? What ten, it was it called Tender Greens? Yep. Yeah. So. If you go to a place like that, I mean, you get freaking your, your food served on, you know, beautiful China from Steel Light, you know, the craft series, you know, but if you get it to go, it's packaged really nice to go. I think that if you eliminate the China part and you just have it in to go container, then you pretty much have things controlled. You know, I think that's, I think that's the mandated thing that should take place, but it's hard for someone that is like, you know, like Crawford and Son and, um, and Raleigh, though Scott Crawford's a great chef. He decided, like, they're at 25%. Um, he decided just to keep it at curbside. He's doing really well, at least staying afloat pretty well with it curbside. And a cool thing is, when you look at his plates going out, if he plates his food, it's not like because it's in a to-go container, they're just dumping it in a to-go container. Right. And like, right. Open, it looks right. like dog, dog food. No, they plate it exactly the same way. So you can, you can do beautiful, sexy food, that's delicious and craveable and higher end in a to-go container. Because guess what? The plate, if I'm only plating on four inches in diameter on this 12 inch plate, I can put that, I can do that same plate up in a eight yes. inch freaking to-go container. hundred percent. hundred percent. And then you just got to have the people keep it upright when they take that's it. Right. Um, that's so right. I want to make sure that we just hit uh, one more thing before we, we, we wrap it up. But in addition to the restaurant, you also have sauces and spices uh, that people yes. can buy. And I want to know if the rise of people not going out and cooking at home has been a boon to having a little bit of chef help in the home uh, with your ready to go sauce and spices, which, you know, obviously no one wants to benefit or look at the positive of COVID and things like that. But yeah. it is it is a good lesson in diversifying your culinary business. Man, that's a great, oh my God. So, so that point is so amazing because I will tell you this, 
Um, I started on, uh, we just completed the outline for my book that we're going to be pitching. Congratulations. Thank you. Agents and whatnot. So we're getting it approved this weekend and we're going to get it to the agents to get out of the publishers starting next week. So we're super excited about it. I would have not started on this book had I been, had I opened up Cut and Gather in Raleigh. I'd have Mm. been totally focused in only on Cut and Gather at Raleigh. Um, yeah, I would not, in my spice line, which I've already have had for the last several years, I've been, you know, tweaking out the label. There's gonna be a big announcement coming here pretty soon. We're we're excited Mm. about it. Nice. Um, and then, uh, it's like, I would not have been able to put emphasis on that if, uh, cut and gather was open. Uh, the sauce line, I literally, one day I was like, well, you know, I'm going to play around sauce because I, I really want to get into a co-packer i found a co-packer i made all my sauces i did a post on my instagram that literally just showed mason jars on each one of them i talked about what they were i sold 300 in spice and sauces literally within that next 10 minutes of people buying them and then i started shipping them out i'm talking about from montana to oregon to freaking california atlanta chicago uh cleveland uh new england i mean and i was like man the goal is to diversify your, your, your platform. You know, the goal is to make money while you're sleeping. You yep. know what I mean? Like, I know. what can, what can I create that someone's going to say, wow, like, so the branding and everything is everything. So like my sauce, my spices, Chef Kenny's spice blends, I got five spices. The, out of those five types of spices, I can literally cook you something from around the world uh, that'll taste authentic Incredible and delicious just because I know the blends of spices that make sense for that particular cuisine. And I know what are in those spices. So I'll be able to, so you can get five of these spices and be able to cook stuff from all around the world. I love and, that. And so to be able to put that in front of people and talk about that on, you know, podcasts like this, or you do like a demo or, you know, a video or some sort. And, and guess what people, and then all of a sudden, yeah, the, the, it's increasing. And then you sort of realize, all right, I need to work on this stuff. Because you get a, you you get an Amazon order, you get it set with Amazon, and then so you know you're like, well, every time I sell that, I make an X amount of dollars per per unit, and I don't have to do anything because all the work was done on the creative side. Yeah. So, so I'm 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 not I'm not happy that the restaurant hasn't opened as of yet, but I'm taking lemons and I'm making lemonade, man. Like I, I'm I'm the lemonade stand on every corner. I'm hustling and grinding every freaking day because you have to. If you haven't created a new hustle during this, then you won't be successful. No, I mean, you know, uh, I won't make it about me at the end, but I've had that same thought. And I've definitely been like, I need to leave pandemic with X amount of new ideas and also Mm -hmm. taking time to balance mental health and awareness and like not feeling that pressure that like, this is a time, I mean, this is a time of suffering. This is a time of like national and international trauma and suffering and so like if you don't have the personal space to create but if you are available to have that time and space to create then go make some lemonade uh well listen kenny chef thank you so much if people want to follow along get some sauces get some spices keep their eyes open um for you know cut and gather or your other restaurants where can they go how can they follow along uh if you go to chef kenny gilbert um dot com I'm pretty much right there. That's, that's the main hub. You go to chefkinggilbert.com. 
uh, is Chef Kenny Gilbert on on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Chef Kenny G thirty seven on Twitter. I pretty much feed everything through my Instagram. So if you follow me there, you pretty much get everything. But if you go to the website again, ChefKennyGilbert.com, you'll see all the latest posts, um, everything that I'm selling, all the spices I'm selling. Uh, there'll be an announcement about my sauces here pretty soon. We'll have five sauces that we'll be launching. Uh, so right before the holidays, you'll be able to get some really cool gift sets, um, you know, for people that like to cook and with recipe cards and all kind of cool stuff. So, so yeah, that's it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. We have another song from the archives and then a live performance from the archives here on HRN. Fall in love. 
I'm Brian Kenny, a board member at HRN and Director of Collections and Archives for Hearst Western Properties. Hearst Ranch Beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. I recently recorded an episode of HRN on Tour with the division manager for Hearst Ranch, Roland Camacho. We talked about what makes Hearst Ranch unique. The business that you're running right now can run like this come what may. Still cattle. The seasons are going to be the seasons. They're going to, you know, the, the type of cattle that we raise is going to be the same. The grasses are going to be the same. We're not, it's not going to be a bunch of track homes. It's going to be right. a ranch. And it's not going to be a bunch of track homes because Hearst Corporation, uh, under the leadership of Stephen Hearst, put a conservation. Mm-hmm. So it will be a ranch forever. Forever. May not get much bigger. Right. But it, it probably will p- uh, persist for a long time. In the modern era of business where the focus and the emphasis is entirely on growth mm-hmm. all the time, how do you deal with that? We don't follow those norms. I mean, that same thought process you're talking about, it, it's st- another train of thought along those same lines is that you need to continue to diversify. Every time you reach that that point of diminishing returns, you need to diversify your product to keep that growth curve going up. And what we're doing is the exact opposite right we're going more simple we're going back to the way things were the way that cattle were intended to be raised to, and we're keeping the ground static so success for us is to be able to maintain our beef will be available in whole foods markets 44 california locations from san luis obispo to san diego throughout the summer beginning june 1st you can also order our 100 percent grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with larder meat company Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. Jeremiah, welcome to, to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Um, tell us, uh, well, we know you're from New York, but tell us where No Sleep began. Where, where No Sleep began? Yeah. Um, I guess it was uh, when I was, I, was in, I did my undergrad at Columbia and... Uh, freshman year uh there is when i uh, started writing music um i've been interested in electronic music for a long time uh but that was when i that was when i started and it was actually a direct result of having access uh for the first time in my life to high-speed internet and being able to download pirated software um to make that music um and actually the name Null Sleep was uh, not originally like an artist name that I came up with. It was actually like the name that I used on IRC and when trading files uh, with other people online. Um, and then I just sort of, it became the name that I used as my online presence. And when I started releasing music, it just sort of carried over to that. Did you know how to write music before you had the software? Uh, no, I the only the only musical training I had had up to that point was I I took like a few weeks of cello lessons when I was like in elementary school. Oh, the classic like let's try this out. You're like fuck this. Yeah, it was yeah. it was actually um, I don't know if any of you remember this movie called Electric Dreams, but it was a movie from the eighties uh, about like a guy who uh, a guy who buys like a computer and the computer has like a built-in AI and then the <laughs> computer and the guy uh, the computer and the guy both fall in love with the same woman who lives next door um, and it's basically lo- uh, like a love triangle between the guy the girl and his computer what year is this uh, some early 80s okay. I think um, 
And the soundtrack uh, was amazing. It was like a bunch of electronic music, Giorgio Moroder, Human League. Wow. Um, it's like one of those movies where like it tapped into this weird subculture. Yeah, the time. it was. And the, and the actual actual movie, the look of the whole movie is amazing because it looks like an Apple commercial from that time. There's like lots of shots that look very much like 80s like Apple branding. Amazing. Um but that was uh, that actually was the reason why I took cello lessons because there's a scene in the movie where like there's this amazing like duet between the computer that's writing this like crazy bleepy stuff and then the woman who's playing a cello and it was I forget what piece it was but it was it just sounded amazing and I ended up taking cello lessons because of it uh, when really I I miss I misdirected <laughs> myself right. I was, oh, yeah. I was supposed to make music that sounded like the computer and that's what i'm doing now oh that's uh that's pretty good that's like uh that's like how uh the way like hackers affect a lot of people like who had never heard of like right. techno and they got hackers and they like well i'm gonna dive into each track on the soundtrack yeah. very much so i think yours is a, a bit of a deeper deeper reference. dive yeah. deeper deeper dive oh, who was in the movie uh I actually don't. No one. No one. None. No like big names. Yeah. Like there were. I think the woman has been in some other things, but the lead, the male lead, I don't even remember from anything else. Uh, has that the music for that movie inspired your music? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, there like Giorgio Moroder is uh, has been an influence ever since. Just like the sort of Italo disco sound and uh, like heavy sort of synthesizer based music production. Um, and uh and yeah same with same with human league um but yeah it's i mean i've gone through a lot of different phases since i started writing music so it, it's different things at different times how would you uh define your the current phase you're in i i don't know it's a good question um <laughs> probably uh i don't yeah i can't even put a i can't put a label on it's that's like one of the hardest things i think you can ask a musician is like to label their own should we, just, should we just hear one? Let's yeah. hear one. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Um, do you have a name for this, or is it just no? These all the tracks that I'm uh, I'm gonna play today are uh, basically like brand new, um, so I don't even have titles for them. That they new haven't new been recorded. Yeah. Oh, that new new, not that old old. Yeah. 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 Uh, cool. All right. Well, um, this is uh, we'll just call it track one, live on Snacky Tunes. Thank you. 
awesome. That makes me like want to go back to Montreal and stay out till the sun comes up in the winter. Uh, type vibes, Taya. I don't know. I'm having like a spiritual experience sitting here watching people eat at Roberta's, listening to that. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty, pretty awesome. Um, we'll give you a second to sit back. To, yeah, just prepping the next one. Yeah. Okay. We got time. It's internet radio. It's a little bit loose here. It's a little loose world. on a Sunday. Careful there. Um, well, that was great. Thank you. We're um, besides you know um, early eighties um, AI movies. <laughs> Where else do you draw your inspiration? I really, I really. Before you answer that, I really yeah. hope you say nowhere. I wish that was like your <laughs> one source. It's like that's it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it's that's definitely a, a big influence. Um, just like, I mean. The whole the whole period of like technology during the eighties, the sort of emergence of the internet, um, the the vision of like where that would lead at that like the the sort of extrapolation of what the future would be like based on like what was happening in the eighties is an interesting like sort of inspirational material to draw from, um, but I mean also constantly influenced by like contemporary things going on and like there's a lot of inspiration because the world is just so fucked right now um so it's like we're we basically are in like the dystopian future we're in like a a very interesting conglomeration of like a lot of the dystopian futures that were like um shown to us in sci-fi uh when we were growing up but like we all but they're also like it's it's more complicated because we've kind of opted into those dystopian futures and Mm -hmm. like we've gotten benefits out of out of some of these pieces of technology that are um, that are also like I don't know uh, they're they're kind of like I, I mean they're kind of insidious in a way because like we we do carry around cell phones everywhere we go and they I, I I'll speak personally they have hurt my memory for sure um, and they I feel very dependent on them because I feel like it's almost like a prosthetic that I need to get around and do things now. Uh, because I just have grown so accustomed to using it, and then if you want to go further down, it's like we're all, they're also surveillance devices that, like you know, based on like the stuff that's come out um, recently, thanks to Snowden, like we're carrying around surveillance devices like willingly at all times. Yeah, uh, I always wondered that if like because of the way that sci-fi was written, our our mom was an avid sci-fi reader that like mm-hmm. they prepped us. To go into this, where yeah. it's like like that self fulfilling prophecy. Like, oh had, my god, how had, deep down the rabbit hole do you want to go yeah. down now? <laughs> but I, but I, but I'm serious. Like, had they not written about, they're like, oh my god, it all came true. And you're like, well, who do you think the scientists were reading when they were young right. and impressionable? And like, then they made. It, it's like there's a there's a lot of connections for the things that were like created based on what was written about. And I think that had other things been written about, that's what it would have come true. Yeah. Although, just and just a point off of that. Uh, Real quickly, uh, William Gibson, um, who you know is sort of coined the the word cyberspace and mm-hmm. uh, one of the most prominent like cyberpunk sci-fi authors, uh, he was asked like what he's like because he gets a lot of credit for like sort of being very prescient about like uh, seeing the the internet and like the power of the network coming and writing about that. But uh, he was asked like what what. Did you miss when you were writing those novels? And uh, 
he's always like very embarrassed about it. He's like, there are no cell phones in any of those books. Like, oh, I, he's like, I missed totally it. missed it. It's like, and it's the probably the thing that has had the biggest impact on. Is it. there no way like that people? I guess maybe I don't know, like that they um, converse with each other or just kind of chatted with each other or was it just kind of I think it was all through like computer it's like through their decks like you know through their like cyber decks or yeah that's okay he called a lot yeah he did and and he's still he's still writing great material that's like interesting because it's it's based in the the current moment uh, but it still feels like sci-fi because so many things in our world are like the sci-fi we read when Mm. we were growing up now yeah Um, well I think the best way to kind of run this show out is to let you kind of just get in there and not just do give you a time limit but bef- so we're going to close it out uh, a little atypical to form but um where yeah but I, well, I, i'd rather you just do your go thing. deep than break it up into two yeah. parts does that okay. work yeah. but yeah. um so where can people find you where can people where are you playing music? where are you playing next uh i don't have anything booked right now i'm focused at the moment i'm like trying to write a lot of new material um that new new that new new material. <laughs> Wait, and, not uh, that old old. Yeah, no, that new new. Wait. And uh, and try and basically like taking bookings as they come in. Um, but uh, you can find me on uh, SoundCloud, Null Sleep, uh, Null Sleep on Twitter, um, Null Sleep with ones instead of L's on Instagram. Whoever that uh, asshole Null yeah. Sleep is, yeah, uh, doesn't who, even post. Who is he? Doesn't and who knows? Yeah. And uh, nullsleep.com is my website. Um, Can I ask when you're in your writing session in that type, like, what's your sustenance? What's fueling you for, like, food and drinks and things like that? Uh, when I'm, like, working? Yeah. Stuff, uh, basically, like, whatever is the fastest thing that I can eat mm. and get back to work. Space so food. Pizza. Pizza is <laughs> yes. quite, Full quite circle. often the answer. Full circle yeah. like a pizza pie, my friends. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, pizza happens often. Uh, Real I brain al- fruit right there. <laughs> I also have, uh, in terms of like snacks, snack wave, um, mm. I do have, a, I constantly have a bag of Warheads uh, candies in my, in my oh. studio. Okay. I love sour, sour candies, and so there are always Warheads on hand. I did not see that coming. <laughs> I like that. That is a good answer. That is a I respect that. that heat. Yeah. Bring the, we need to bring the heat, right? Yeah, you got that's respected. Um, well, thanks for uh, thanks for coming by, Talia. Yeah. Welcome again to the family. Thank you. Uh, I can't wait to hear more of your program, especially how I can be educated on my pro snacking choices. I'll have you guys in. We can uh, talk. Oh, that'd be me. I'm definitely happy to not be cutting out of work to come on your show. Yeah. Doctor's appointment. Perfect. Or meeting. Up, Pizza up doctor. Town. Uh, we will be back with another episode of Snacky Tunes next week. Uh, please make sure to check out the Snacky Tunes Volume 5 live comp on the Heritage Radio Network and if uh, you haven't SoundCloud. yet become a donor to the Heritage Radio Network, please, please, please become a donor, especially for the holiday season. Um, keeps Makes the lights on. Gift. Keeps the pizza coming. It's a great gift. Um, all right. No sleep. Uh, take us out. Take us out.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.